Uh, hello, and uh, welcome to Stoner. Uh, coming to you this week from the road. Um, this is kind of an unusual episode. I talked to a British man who went to Morocco in the early 70s uh, to take a look at the traditional hash making techniques and more or less never came back. Uh, at the time I did this interview, all I know was that his name was Mr. D. He did not have a phone, he lived a nomadic existence, but that he would be at a specific house at a specific time, and that that house had a Skype address, and that if I called it, he might talk to me, so I gave him a call. My name is Digby. Yeah, okay, I, got, and I was a bit surprised, I just got a message saying that you don't know anything about me, not even my name. My first reason to get to Morocco was because of the cannabis plant, uh, but when I, when I got here, I found lots of other reasons to stay, you know. I, I mean, I'm totally in love with the country, with the people, and I spend my whole life just wandering around it. Uh, but the original motivation was was certainly the cannabis plant. Okay, so plant. when did you first visit Morocco? Um, 1973, I first got to Morocco. Um, it, it, it's changed quite radically since 1973, but on the other hand, as you look in the photo, so have I. Bit of a drag, really. <laughs> but that's, that, you know, that's what's happening. Ch change is inevitable. Uh, but I, I turned up in 1973 and I arrived in Tangier. I spent two days in Tangier and then I got up to the mountains and I actually got on a bus and went straight up to a place called Isagan, which is the sort of capital of the province of Katama. Um, it was it was the middle of winter and, and snowing and I got to a farm there and, and got taken in and, and do you know what? I, I, I was a sort of a young hippie at the time, yeah? And, and totally believing in, in a sort of flower power, love and peace, you know, tune in, turn on and drop out. Uh, the, the new age was on, it was on its way and we were going to bring it in the next six months. And when I got to Morocco and actually got up in the mountains, I was stunned because I found all the people who lived up in those mountains actually lived like hippies anyway. Uh, there wasn't anything new in, in the sort of hippie ideas. It's just they, they'd sort of been on this uh, on this nice, peaceful way, if you like, for the last God knows how many years. And at the time, hadn't been infected by neither electricity nor television or any of this, uh, you know, the so-called wonders of the modern world, which uh, can, can corrupt societies and uh, destroy them very quickly. When I got here, it was still pristine. I was stunned. I got up into these places in the mountains. And the people would sit in the evenings and tell stories that they had been telling literally for the last 1,000, 2,000 years. They'd passed them from father to son, father to son, father to son. And I, I was, I, you know, I feel really lucky that I got some of those stories and heard them because, of course, as soon as the electricity came, uh, people stopped telling each other stories. You know, the radio came and then the television came and then football came. And, and in the last 30 years, most of those stories which had been preserved for thousands of years have actually disappeared because, you know, this is uh, this is what happens. I can remember when I was a, a kid in England, there the, were the famous Grimm fairy stories, which the, the two Grimm brothers had actually collected, I think, at the end of the 18th century, when the same thing was happening in Europe. These tales which had been told around the fireside for sort of centuries were all disappearing as people were getting sort of more sophisticated uh, means of distraction, if you like. <laughs> but anyway, as I say, I got up to that mountain and, and I discovered uh, 
the most beautiful plant in in the world, the most sacred plant, the most treasured plant, um, and and people just in love with each other. So I was very happy to stay there. And it ended up with me staying at that time for about five years. I then wandered off, and I turned back up in Morocco in the 80s. Since which time I've been more or less permanently here. But I, I travel around a lot, so I'm in and out a lot. When you made that first trip in 1973, um, what like who were you in 1973 that you ended up in Morocco? Were you curious about the marijuana culture? Or what um, what what drove you? No, I was dedicated to it. <laughs> uh, I wasn't in London. I, I I was very lucky. I grew up in a in a part of England close to the close to the border to Wales, uh, and a very in a very beautiful part of the country. Actually, rather like Chefchaouen in the north of Morocco, rolling hills and and nice green uh, countryside. Uh, but you know, I was fifteen in nineteen sixty seven. Uh, a friend of mine had been in San Francisco, and he just came back, and he had this tiny little yellow tablet in his hand. And said, we should all try this. Well, I was very keen to try it. And believe me, I've, I, I'm still trying it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I totally believe in love, surrender and devotion. So, you know, once I'd taken it, I was in love. I took so much I had to surrender. And since then, I've been permanently devoted. It's it's pretty simple, really. <laughs> so, so already when I got here, it was, it, it, as I say, that my real interest to come here was the cannabis plant. You know, I was a deadhead. My father was a deadhead, actually. So you were just, you were like, I'm going to go up into the reef mountains and see what's going on with uh, the marijuana up there. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? I was, I was, I was dedicated to the mission of we're going to turn the whole world on and we're going to, you know, bring, make it all green and, and beautiful before the seventies kicks in. Uh, young idealist as I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now still a young idealist. It's just my ideals have become more, more uh, real, shall we say. So tell me about the... the... <laughs> in, in, the what you saw when you got there in 1973 what were the hash making techniques like what were the villages this stuff was happening in like um yeah it was it was very very primitive in those days you know there was no electricity um the 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 lights were sort of candles and and uh, oil lamps um and the me the the manner of making the hash was the, the 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 same way they'd made it in the lebanon they were they were cutting the plant letting it dry and then cleaning it and beating it over silk screens um and that they told me at the time that they'd learned that method from the lebanon although i actually later found that they'd been using that method hundreds of years before Hashish wasn't the new thing that we all thought it was. We, when I got most of the country, when I got here in the 70s, they actually smoked keef. Keef is is a, is a mixture of the marijuana flour chopped chopped very finely and then mixed with a little bit of natural black tobacco. And it's smoked in a long wooden pipe with a small clay bowl at the end. Now, this was definitely the tradition in this country. And yeah. what happened in the 60s, the hippies all started to arrive. And, of course, we brought the cigarette papers, the papers and the joint. Um, and as you've seen, if you've made a recent visit, most of the culture here has actually changed to the joint. But in those days, it was very much the Sibsi. And, and the hash that was being made was mainly for export or for the tourists who were visiting the country. 
Um, but I later found in a, in, a, in, a, in a travel book on Morocco from, I think, the 18th century about a guy who'd actually experienced hashish in Morocco that was just being made for the Sufi brotherhoods. And that wasn't considered to be sort of for public use. It was more for a sacred restricted use. And that was made in the same way by cutting the plants and beating it over a, over a silk screen. How far into Morocco's history do you think this kind of agricultural production goes back? That's a very interesting question. Now, the, the, the name Katama, uh, I've been told, comes from the word Katum, which means secret. And I've also been told that this, this valley was the original place where uh, a guy called Moulay Driss, who is considered to be the founder of this country, arrived when he was fleeing the, uh, the sort of Sunni Muslims who were trying to kill him in Saudi Arabia. Uh, after the death of, of Muhammad, the last prophet, whatever, he, his, uh, the people in, in Saudi Arabia decided that they wanted to kill all, all the descendants of his family. And they did a pretty good job. They sort of started to murder them en masse. Uh, and his great-grandson, I think it was, managed to flee that and arrived in Morocco. And I understand he arrived in that, in that mountain area. Uh, as far as the local history goes, it's always been there. Um, but the plant that was there was a particularly uh, psychoactive plant. It was the only place where this plant was being grown purely for, for its psychoactive purpose. There's never been a big rope industry or paper industry or hemp industry in Morocco, but there's always been keef to smoke. Now, until, until the, Moroccan, uh, the, the present Moroccan king's grandfather got independence, Keef was grown all over Morocco, and the people grew it in their gardens and smoked it in their pipes. Uh, part of the deal of independence was that the, the country was joining the UN, and therefore psychoactive plants were going to be uh, illegal, at which point the king's grandfather made a special dispensation for the province of what is known as Katama, and then sent the gendarmes around the rest of the country to tell all the rest of the people they could no longer grow keef in their gardens. And that's when this became the sort of dominant region for growing keef, although it had been the region for supplying the cities of Casablanca and Fez previously. At what point um, in history did, I mean, Morocco become really almost synonymous with um, international uh, hash exportation? Well, what happened there was in exactly in 1981, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. As soon as the Russians invaded Afghanistan, they cut off all the trade routes from Nepal, Pakistan, India. And, you know, in, in the 80s already, Amsterdam was the big sort of um, hash market of Europe. Uh, and suddenly the supplies from the east were totally cut off. Now, prior to that, the people who'd come to Morocco had maybe bought maybe, you know, 20 kilos, maybe a big thing would have been 200 kilos. After that route was cut off, Afghani people and Pakistani people were turning up in Morocco and they were looking for huge amounts. These people had been in the, in the trade, you know, this, this had been an established trade in Pakistan since the English had been there and actually, you know, had the monopoly on it until 1936. So they were actually looking tons of the product, not just kilos, they wanted tons. And what happened then was a very sad thing because uh, there was a bit of an ecological disaster. Everybody in that, in that small province where they'd been allowed to grow it just stopped growing anything else and started to grow keef. 
prior to that, it hadn't been a monoculture. The people up there, they'd grown keith, they'd grown wheat, they'd grown tomatoes and vegetables and everything else. But suddenly it became so valuable, it became a monoculture. And after that time, Morocco became the dominant producer of, of hashish in the world, which it still is. You know, I mean, I, I know that in Europe, 40 tons a day is consumed. God knows what it would be worldwide. Uh, in the country itself, it's between five and seven tons each day. That's also about the same time as when you returned to um, to Morocco more permanently, the early 80s. It was a big shock for me because I'd left maybe in about 1978, I think. Yeah. And I came back just seven years later and I went up the hills and I was absolutely sort of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was a state of shock, you know, the, the the huge forested mountains that I'd known had all disappeared. They'd cut down the trees and they just planted keef. And what happened a few years after that, there was a really severe winter. And a lot of those slopes, which had been held up by the by the cedar trees, they just all fell down. Uh, thanks, Beast. People have wised up a lot since then. You know what I mean? It, it, I'm talking about 30, 35 years ago or something. And people have, have realized that it's important to have other habitat, that it's not good to have monoculture. The problem we have right now in this country is that the indigenous Moroccan sativa plant, which, as I said, this in this country, it was grown purely for its psychoactive uh, properties, is starting to disappear. And it's being replaced by other, by other uh, plants which are giving much bigger yields uh, and they're coming from imported seeds. You know, maybe in the 90s, somebody started to bring in seeds from Pakistan. Uh, in the late 90s, it was discovered that the seed from Kazakhstan, which is known as Hardala, uh, did really well in Morocco. Since then, we've got Mexican seeds, Jamaican seeds. Now we have like critical and Kush and white widow seeds. Uh, these are all indica plants, and the main, the original Moroccan plant was a, a thin sativa plant, but with a very high THC content. What What do you in think the, the origins the, of that plant are? I mean, is that a plant that's well, I think naturally you know my own my own personal theory, and this is only my own personal theory, although there might be quite a bit of historical evidence to back it up, is that when Driss actually came here. You know, until the Ottoman Empire was destroyed in 1918, the whole of what we call the so-called Islamic world smoked cannabis. It was just normal. Nobody thought it was odd or different. It was just what they did. They smoked cannabis. And it, it was uh, alcohol that was considered to be frowned upon, but cannabis considered to be just par for the course, you know. Uh, so I believe that when when they came, if it wasn't already here, I think they had actually picked the best seeds for just the psychoactive plant that had originated in Tibet and by then had arrived in Baalbek in the Lebanon and brought those seeds here. The people here tell me, no, it's indigenous and it's always been here. But, I, you know, it, it's, uh, as I say, it's a sativa plant. It's a tall, high THC producing plant. And uh, the, there isn't any evidence of it anywhere else in the area. As I say, they used to grow it all over the country, but now it's only grown in, in Katama. And I, I would say, I know the history certainly goes back to the sort of 12th century. There are, there are known Moroccan saints who were famous for smoking their sort of cannabis pipes. And that's in the 12th century. So, you know, by then in this country, it was, it was well in. And, and uh, you know, as you know, in, in Iran and places like this, it's got an, an older history and it's been part of the culture there for at least a millennia. 
What is it so about I would the, say that, the Moroccan um, climate and, and um, uh, uh, natural topography that makes it unique as a product and, and led to it to becoming a major growing center? Yes, well, I, you know, as I say, the, the it's now become a major growing center, more because of the it's easy to transport from Morocco to Europe. Um, but the original uh, the original plant that actually grew up in the mountains, um, it was growing up on slopes that were sort of 1,800 up to 2,000 meters above sea level. That's nowhere near as high as the Himalayas, obviously, but it's fairly high. And the thing was, in those days, it would be grown also lo on lower slopes where it was getting irrigated. But on the higher slopes, it was never getting irrigated. And it was the mixture of the irrigated and the unirrigated plant, which gave it its special sort of particular distinctive character. And also the fact that, you know, I, I know that the German police have analyzed hashish from the mountains of Morocco and found it to be 20% THC. Uh, and this is already maybe sort of six or seven years ago. They were so impressed, they didn't believe their own results. They went back and checked it again because prior to that, the previous uh, high had been 18% THC in, in, in cannabis. And they found it really was 20% THC. Um, so it, it, it had a, a high THC ratio forever. What's happening now is since the sort of age of genetics and all this, People are now bringing uh, skunk plants and, and different plants here which have higher THC, but they're indica plants. So it's a, it's a different high. Do you know what I mean? The, the Moroccan plant was a very high high. It was cerebral. It made you creative. It made you and it filled you with energy and power as opposed to the product that's mainly smoked now, which is called Hardala. It's more than something that sort of knocks your knees out of you and you sit and look at the wall for three hours and don't actually do anything, you know. <laughs> so, well, what's the role like? What's the role like in in Moroccan culture of um, smoking keef or hash? Um, I know it's a society. I, I was there this year. I know it's a society where um, liquor is not plentiful. Uh, it's very difficult to find alcohol in Morocco. So, what's the like? How how do people culturally perceive hashish, and and who are the people who use it, and how? You know, the interesting thing is that when I came here in the 70s, hashish and keef were really considered to be sort of okay. In the 80s and 90s, there started to be a slight change in the mindset where where the sort of the people in the mosques were saying, oh, no, it's a drug and we shouldn't be taking drugs and da da da. Prior to that, as, it, as you said, alcohol isn't so easy to find here, but but really, in the in the in the cities now, alcohol is becoming more sort of used than ever before. Luckily, most of the young people still smoke hash. Uh, but whereas the old men smoked keef, a lot of that is dying out, and the young people are now taking up hash. Uh, and whereas it was at one point considered to be morally okay, it's now become a grey area. There's a there's a, a, a you know the people have forgotten their own history. So the Saudi and Arabians who've been smoking it for a thousand years have suddenly stopped and now say, oh, you mustn't do that. And of course, Morocco is quite influenced by Saudi opinion, and that that's again an opinion which says it is a drug. You know what what what's needed in Morocco is more input from the West Coast states of America 
where it's considered to be a recreational substance. <laughs> and the quicker that it becomes a, a, a legal substance, the richer Morocco, the quicker Morocco could be one of the richest countries in the world. <laughs> what, what is it like watching what's happening? Uh, California voted to legalize marijuana this year. Um, but yeah, basically the whole West Coast um, has um, some form of legalization. As someone who was interested in this stuff, 40 years ago, uh, how does it feel to see all these things happening now? Um, sort of good and, and bad. <laughs> good in the sense that, okay, you finally, you can you can breathe freely. Yeah? yeah. Bad in the sense that I'm an old hippie that believed in peace and love, and I see it now all becoming just a capitalist industry. Uh, and inevitable in the sense that, you know, you're in a capitalist country, aren't you? <laughs> you want to get it through, it's going to have to be a capitalist thing. And also, the fact that, that the, 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 the capitalist side of it might make it easier to break it through in the rest of the world. Right. You know what I mean? That it's a very, very economically yeah. viable substance. What, what have you been uh, up to in, in Morocco all these years? Well, I, I, I worked in the environment. Yeah, yeah. We had a solar panel company and I, got, I was involved in environmental stuff. And I was actually quite sort of uh, close to the government in Rabat during the time of Hassan II doing environmental consultancy and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I gave all that up after the environment left us in about the year 2000. And then I started making rave parties, as in trans dance festivals, a bit like Burning Man in the, in the Sahara Desert. And I did that until like 2007, when we got a bit of a radical reaction from some fundamental side of Morocco who suddenly thought... Uh, that all these people who believed in love and peace were obviously Satanists. Uh, so that sort of died back a little bit. It still goes on, but it's much quieter. Were the raves attended by Moroccans or uh, expats? Mainly expats, uh, but Moroccans from the big cities. You know, It's sort of like Tangier would have a, a proportion from Tangier, Casablanca, Fez, Marrakesh, uh, a a portion of, if you like, their sort of bourgeoisie, because, you know, most young Moroccans wouldn't even have the cash to get on a bus to get to the place. And, you know, again, that was a bit of a dream I had, that we were going to be able to give them all free entry and just make money from food and drink. Uh, but I wasn't alone in that, and there were capitalists involved as well. But it was mainly, exp uh, not expats, actually, mainly the sort of trans-dance community that moves all around the world, you know. And, and they came to Morocco and danced here for us. Are you just a, um, uh interested bystander to the Moroccan marijuana world, or have you been uh, part of it as a businessman in any way? Well, I, I uh, when I returned in the 80s, yeah, um, I was, uh, I was a, a single youngish man, and um, I, I thought it was part of the mission was to provide the world with the best quality uh, substance that they could possibly get their hands on. So I did dedicate myself to that for a few years. Then I, I met a German lady and had two children. And as soon as my first daughter came along, then I, I changed my function completely because I, I no longer wanted to uh, uh, risk my freedom. <laughs> sure. And I mean, doing that in Morocco must now, have been... Aaron, is I'm a bubble magician. A bubble magician. Uh, where do you do, where yeah. do you practice? Mainly in Spain. Oh, okay. Um, I, I do some bubbles here in Morocco, but it's a bit different in Morocco. I have to do it for sort of events or parties or things. 
But if I just go over to Spain in the summer and make bubbles on the streets, I, I, I have a wonderful time and earn some, some money. Where, do you have a fixed and, address in Morocco or are you just kind of place to place? Um, well, there's a, the only... I, <laughs> um, I have a couple of what you might call bases in Morocco. Uh, I have a little house by a circle of standing stones, like Stonehenge which is about 50 kilometers south of Tangier. Um, but because I'm very rarely there, I tell people the best way to find out where I am is to go to St. Andrew's English Church in Tangier and ask the Guardian. Or go to the Valley of the Roses and ask the people in the Valley of the Roses, which is a, an oasis of roses in the Sahara Desert. Uh, and most of my life is drifting between those two places, the north of Morocco and the south of Morocco. I, I'm still quite young, as you see in the photos. So as I get older, I'm going to need to uh, probably get back more to this base and dig a garden and settle in. But really, I'm a nomad. I, I travel around all the time. I, I don't stop. And uh, well, well, During the years before you had children, um, when you were involved in um, uh, turning the world on uh, to this plant, um, what was the craziest thing that happened to you? What's the craziest story you have? Oh, wow. <laughs> Mamma mia, Aaron, you're just asking me to sum up what most people would consider to be a completely extraordinary, crazy life yeah. in, in one little uh, item. I mean, it's, it, that's really too hard. Did you, have any, did you have any close calls during those years? Uh, I've had some very interesting escapes and also some not-so escapes. <laughs> <laughs> what were, the, um, what were yes, the escapes? You know, well... As as uh, well, I've had people sort of firing at me and, and all sorts of things, but funnily enough, do you know what went through my head as that happened? That I, I don't normally watch much TV, films, or anything like that. I read books, and that's about it. But I, I can remember that I'd seen a Rambo movie, and I remember that Rambo, who was running across the Vietnamese jungle, had ducked and darted from left to right like zigzag. Yeah? And I thought, that's what I got to do. So I ducked and I darted from, Z and thanks be, because then I heard literally the whistle go past my ears of these bullets which it would have actually laid me down if i hadn't remembered that little bit of rambo advice but i uh, I, I that was in my younger days I, I now try to avoid those sort of situations who who was shooting at uh, a madman to be quite honest <laughs> a mad a mad spanish man um uh, but thanks be i'm still here to tell the tale and uh and now, as I as I get older, I try and seek a more mellow uh, existence. For people who are coming, who want to visit Morocco, um, I'm thinking of Americans, but people from anywhere who want to visit Morocco, is it still possible to see these traditional hash making techniques to go up into these vi villages and experience any of this stuff, or is it too secretive and the legal stuff makes that impossible? You know, now that's a funny question, Aaron, because if I answer that, yeah. I already break it down, don't I? It's true. You know, I'm, I'm an old hippie. I got, I got, I got here in, in the 70s. We went to beaches which were paradise, man. They were unbelievable, yeah? Yeah. Well, shortly after we got there, the, the, the bulldozers and the tracks and the other guys arrived because they'd seen that we'd spotted paradise and they realized they could put hotels and apartment blocks there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, right now, yes, it is possible. Um, you can you can still get sort of off track, and that's the thing. You've got to get off track. If if you're on if you're on a tarmac road on a on a 
tarmac. Yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah. Asphalt uh, road. You're not going to find it. You need to get deep in the mountains, down these tracks. You know where they're not uh, they're not tarmac. And then you can still find small farms down there where they where they're doing the still the traditional way. And that's mostly in in the uh, Reef Mountains. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all in the Reef Mountains. Uh, even now, if, if things change and it becomes a legalized product, then very probably very quickly that will all die out and it'll become uh, a, a product. Do you know what I mean? So everybody will get the same sort of kit and caboodle and they'll all start banging out, uh, you know, isolated or whatever. Uh, but right now that hasn't happened yet and you could still get deep in the mountains and, and visit some of the old farmers up there. And, and have a genuine experience. Um, we usually close the show with a little quiz. Um, it's just like a few questions. Okay. So we call this, uh, we call this uh, questionnaire peak experiences. Uh, the first question is, okay. what is your favorite way uh, to enjoy marijuana? Uh, my favorite way of, of smoking cannabis is in the Sibsi, in the traditional Moroccan way. It's a long wooden pipe. It has a, a clay bowl. So it's all organic, and I will prepare my own keef to put in it by hand chopping it. I won't even use a machine. I believe I've got to put a little bit of my sweat into it to get the taste out. And so I'll hand chop it, and it's probably going to take me about three days, uh, four hours a day to chop enough that will last me probably for about two weeks. And and that's the traditional method. Did you see some of that while you yeah, were here? Yeah, what do you do the chopping with? Uh, with a very sharp knife. Oh, okay, and you're basically... Uh pureeing it you're uh, you're cutting it down into the yeah, tiny first, little pieces well first of all i i have to clean it i have to then take all the stalks all the well first of all all the leaf off it all the seeds off it all the stalk off it so what i've got left is just the sort of flower and then i, I i'll chop that normally so it would be fine enough to go through a sort of tea strainer hmm. That's very fine. And then that, that'll go in my pipe, and, and with it, it'll only last me for maybe two or three puffs on the pipe, and then it's finished. And then I shall probably fill about three or four pipes, and then I'm happy. I have a nice smile on my face, and I'm ready to do the next thing. And it's also that it's a, it's a lightweight smoke. It keeps you up and running. It's not like, as I was saying before, about smoking these hashes now made from the new plants where you, you just feel like somebody sort of knocked your legs away and you gaze at the wall for hour, hours. The uh, the keef keeps you moving, keeps you doing things. It's very good. It's funny too because originally in this culture, I was talking before about in the 12th century, saints known for their cannabis consumption. Actually, in that time, they were consuming it in Hubble bubbles, in hooker pipes, in uh, Nagila, the sort of uh, the eastern pipe with the long tube coming out of it, you know. And when I came here in the 70s, that had completely disappeared out of Morocco, totally replaced with this Sibsi, which is just the long, thin wooden pipe. When I spoke to people about it, they told me, yes, the Sibsi was much more practical than this big glass bowl with the tubes and everything else. And the Sibsi is transportable and the Sibsi was easier to use. Recently, uh, in about the last 15 years, this this Nagila, the hooker pipe, has come back to Morocco as being an alternative that's sort of legal to smoke when it's only got tobacco in it. And and now in Morocco, we've got a new culture of, of hooker cafes, hooker in the sense of the uh, A-H, uh, rather than It's popular here, too. You go to, you go to Queens in New York, uh, there's hookah cafes all over the place. 
Okay, and do you know what? I mean, I find that actually much more sort of oh, knocks me knocks me sideways if I smoke that. <laughs> I think it's much better to smoke some THC than nicotine. <laughs> Although nicotine has wonderful functions as well, you know. Question but, number uh, two. Yeah. Question number two. Okay. What what is one place that you visited um, through all your travels that's the most meaningful or special to you? The Valley of the Roses. Mm. The Valley of the Roses is an oasis of roses in the Sahara Desert that has been planted maybe a thousand years ago in irrigated river valleys that are pouring down into the Sahara Desert. And between the months of the end of April until the beginning of June, the I go to a little village there, and a very small village, and the girls will go out every morning at the crack of dawn and they'll come back at about 11 o'clock with four tons of rose blossom every day. After you've been there for a week, everything is impregnated with the smell of rose blossom. Plus, an oasis in a desert has very special uh, properties. So it's not only an oasis of roses. We also have wonderful almonds, uh, uh, walnuts, figs, grapes, uh, pears, apples, potatoes. <laughs> you name it, we've got it. And it's paradise on earth. But it's, it's particularly just in the springtime. It, it, it's not only the place you have to go in the right time as well. When you're, but that's the the most beautiful spot I can think of. When you're in Morocco right um, or on the road, what's your favorite snack? <laughs> that's very interesting because I believe some people have have uh, live to eat and some people eat to live. Morocco is yeah? a good snacking culture too. You got a lot of options. It is a good snacking culture, but I'm not a snacker. No, oh really? I, I actually, I actually recently met a, a gentleman who's an Apache shaman who was eighty something years old, and how old was he? Eighty seven, uh, and and he's only drunk water for the last twenty years. So my favorite thing in Morocco is ulmas. Ulmas is a natural gassy water, a natural sparkling water which comes out of the mountains in the middle of Morocco. And if I'm going to snack on anything, it's going to be a couple of slugs of almonds. I call it the Moroccan champagne. Very good. Very good. Um, when you do uh, eventually decide to uh, end this roaming life and uh, settle down in that little, um, that little house, you said it was uh, in a circle of rocks? Yeah, it's called Cromlech Mzora. Cromlech Mzora. M Z O U R A, and Cromlech, as in a circle of dolmens. If um, you could only bring a single album with you, uh, what would you bring? Wow, man, what generation do you come from? Are you talking about an LP and, that's um, like I, twenty minutes? You, you get the object of your own like, youth, you get... so you will you will get a, uh, a freshly. <laughs> Uh, printed okay, LP. Okay, it would have to be the Grateful Dead Blues for Allah, man. Very, very good answer. Was that... Uh, Did you get that? I actually saw yeah. a, a really incredible video uh, of the Grateful Dead playing uh, at the Pyramid in Giza. Uh, I, okay, yeah. yes. I wasn't there, but I had friends who were. Yeah. And that was must have been a wonderful night. Did they ever play in Morocco? <laughs> no. And, you know, sadly, once Jerry left, it was never really the same thing anyway, but... Uh, uh, and, you know, it was a moment in time, wasn't it? it uh, when I was a young man, I was a deadhead. I still totally loved the, 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 the music and everything else. But 
Uh, life has to have changes in it. We don't want to get stuck on sort of one level, you know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> we want to keep going. And for me at that time, and even now, as I say, if I was now going to be sort of literally put on a desert island somewhere, it'd have to be uh, blues for Alec. What is one thing, is my final question, um, that you're still looking forward to in life? My grandchildren. My grandchildren. Yeah, can you please get this to my daughters? I've told my daughters the other day, I said, listen, if you don't do it quick, I'm marrying a young Moroccan girl, I'm going to have another family. <laughs> and my daughter said to me, well, she's got to be older than us, Papa. Where, so where do your I'm daughters live? My granddaughters. Miriam, Zora, are you listening? <laughs> well, my one daughter is actually now in Marrakesh, and my other daughter lives in Strasbourg in France. Ah, did they grow up in Morocco? Uh, so, um, they, yeah, they're born, and my second daughter was actually born in a tent in Morocco when she was, uh, when my wife was seven and a half months pregnant and suddenly sort of went into labor. So we had a quick birth of my second daughter, and my first daughter was born in Tangiers. What was it like raising kids yes. in Morocco? They had a German mother as well, so they had quite an interest. They've got an interesting background, yeah. Uh, I think I was very lucky. I think I had my kids in the best place in the world. You know, and when my when my daughters were young, we went over to England to visit some people, and I saw how worried and paranoid they were about even letting their kids go outside the front door. You know, my kids grew up in a country where everybody loves kids, and, and they could have gone anywhere. Everybody would have watched out for them, looked after them, you know. Uh, and I was quite shocked when I saw how sad it was in England that the, the kids were really being sort of locked into their houses because their parents were frightened that if they went out into the playground, they were going to get kidnapped or I don't know what, you know, it was very sad. So I give thanks that uh, uh, I'm, I'm often giving thanks. I don't want to name what I'm thanking because it's too big to name. But um, I give thanks that my kids were, grew up, were born and, and grew up here and had wonderful childhoods. Thank you so much, Digby. Uh, this was wonderful. Aaron, listen, it's been a great pleasure talking to um, you. I, thank you very I much hope for I, the I hope I get to meet you. Well, you know, you know, as we say here, if if we're still in the life, we will meet. Very good. Um, thank you again. Yeah. Okay. God bless you, brother. You take care and enjoy. Okay. Ciao, ciao. And that was Stoner. Uh, thanks very much to. Uh, Mr. D, aka Digby. Um, thanks to my friend who helped um, book this episode. Uh, I don't know if she wants her name said, so I won't say it. Um, but uh, thank you to everyone who uh, helps uh, put this show together, including uh, Justine Dom, who is helping out with some future bookings. I edited this one myself. I'm sorry the sound was not great. Uh, weird Skype connections, weird recording bumps. Uh, but we like to get the show to you this and every Tuesday. Uh, if you want to get in touch, hi at stoner.co.